We are entering the home stretch of our series in Romans over the coming weeks. We've been working through this letter from St. Paul to Christians in Rome for several months now. We'll be finishing up at the end of August, at the end of chapter 8, and maybe we'll take up the rest of Romans in the year to come. We'll see. One of the primary features that we focused on in the letter has been this contrast between life in Christ and life under the law. Using terms that we find in our reading this morning, the the contrast has been between life in the realm of the flesh or life in the old way of the written code and life in the new way of the spirit. Flesh and spirit here are not so much contrasting physical and immaterial, so much as they're contrasting the life of obligation and self-reliance, of sinful striving, and the life of grace, ours and ever new in Jesus, yours through faith in Christ. Yet like that old cynical phrase, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, there may be the temptation to think that these lives are not really that different. That the contrast made in Romans is illusory in some way. That's especially the case, perhaps, when we hear terms like belonging to another or serving, literally slaving in the original language. In our culture of expressive individualism, of independence, that doesn't sound to us, perhaps, like a life of freedom. We might ask, by by what means is life in Christ actually new? How is it different? In our reading this morning, from the beginning of Romans chapter 7, there is an answer, and I'd like to group that answer around two headings. First, the good news of our demise, and second, the cosmic marriage. First, the good news of our demise. Our reading opens with this extended analogy that makes a very simple point. Death brings release. Death brings release from contractual obligation. In a marriage, in a wedding, they'll often say, till death do us part, predicated on the sense that death nullifies our commitments. You and I, we're born into a world, into a web of obligation. We might like to think of ourselves as rugged individualists, independent But the reality is that we are bound up in covenants, in expectations from our earliest moments to parents and families as citizens of a particular nation. And those expectations, those obligations, they only increase as we mature. Jobs and friend groups. Every time you download a song or movie on iTunes, you upgrade your software. There's a contract, formal and informal, spoken and unspoken, Of the making of contracts, there is no end. Mostly well and good, we might say. The the stuff of a functioning community. The way we make a way for ourselves, our communities, in a world of brokenness, broken trust. But Paul's issue here is that our lives are so often dominated by such obligations. Our lives are dominated by the sense that our growth, our value, is rooted in our ability to live up to expectations. This is the tone of the language related to the law here. We are ruled over. We are bound, not free. 
We're not free because we come to see our well-being, our belonging, in connection with our ability to measure up. This is what it means to live in the realm of the flesh, where we are left to our own devices, where we're trusting in ourselves, our own strength, to gain the life for which we made. For every claim we make about autonomy and freedom, the freedom to express ourselves, this is the default setting of life. The fundamental question of contemporary culture is, are you enough? Do you measure up? An implication of our reading this morning is that for the people of God to whom Paul is writing, things are not that different. In the giving of God's law, there's this obligation set out, good and life-giving, a contract of sorts, a standard and expectation. And circumcision for the people of Israel is like signing on the dotted line. You are committed. And all God's people said, amen. A covenant, an agreement has been entered into. Obligations now exist. But the effect of sin is that God's life-giving law becomes this smothering, oppressive thing, a blanket over human life. Life under, bound up, ruled over by the written code. Paul suggests one way out, death. That is Paul's basic point at the opening of the reading. The only two certain things we say in life are death and taxes. And the only way to escape the latter is the former, mostly, right? There's inheritance tax and all that stuff. But if you want out of the realm of the flesh, the flesh needs to die. There's this tight sort of undeniable logic to Paul's point here. But it is so counterintuitive. The means by which we enter life is death. The path forward is not to work that much harder, to be that much stronger, to trust more fully in our own capacity, to fulfill every obligation. That creates this sort of spiritual survival of the fittest for the people of God. It does not get you anywhere good. It does not generate the life that God desires. The path forward is death. Our demise brings freedom. For Paul, this freedom, this freedom bringing death, comes through our connection to the body of Christ. It's Christ's body that dies in our place. In him, on the cross, the flesh is crucified. In him, we die. This is the language of repentance and baptism. In Acts 2.38, in response to those longing to be saved, to, to find a way, Peter responds, repent and be baptized. That's the way forward. That's the way to freedom. Repentance is a kind of death. It's a dying to our own ideals, a thinking again about our own self-sufficiency, our capacity to make it on our own. Repentance, this mode, colors the whole of the Christian life. It is the way of life. Not posturing, not hiding, not trusting in ourselves, but acknowledging Weakness and sin, dying to ourselves, dying to the belief in our own capacities, our own goodness, acknowledging our need for the grace, the surpassing goodness of Jesus. Baptism, too, is a death. 
By the means of water, we are brought into the body of Christ. We are incorporated. As we come in faith and in obedience to Jesus, we are baptized. We're united with him. We come to share in him, in his death. For most of us, baptism is probably thoroughly domesticated. We don't get scared about it. But one lens of understanding baptism is that it is a drowning. It's the flood of Noah in the individual's life. The idea is that something stays in the water. Something dies. The flesh, life under the law, that dies with Jesus on the cross. In your baptism, done in faith, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have died to an old mode of existence. And in that death, the obligations of the law, the dominance of sinful nature is nullified. It does not have a claim over you. You're like Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, right? You died. You fulfilled your obligation. That wasn't in my notes. You're free from all your striving, from the way of life that that all entails. The famous American outlaw of the 19th century, Frank James, he was the, the brother of Jesse James. After his brother's death, when he turned himself in after decades as a fugitive, he had this to say. He said, I have been hunted for 21 years, have literally lived in the saddle, have never known a day of perfect peace. This is the key part. It was one long, anxious, inexorable, eternal vigil. That's life under the law. That's life in the realm of the flesh. Living in rebellion to the law, stirred up in, against it, but ruled over by the law. That is the good news of our death in Christ. The old way, the way of striving, of earning is rendered void. The way of rebellion is nullified. With Christ who dies in our place, this anxious eternal vigil, slavery to the law is brought to an end. The obligation has been fulfilled. We are released, wedded to another. That is the radical change that comes from belonging to him who died for us. That brings us to our second heading, the cosmic marriage. Paul's analogy in those opening verses is all about this point, this point of death and release from obligation. Yet the language of marriage, the imagery of marriage is no accident. The husband we are free to marry is none other than Christ. As the whole testimony of the Bible points out. When we are baptized, we are drawn into the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Whatever your marital status, you are married. Not in an individualistic way you and Jesus, but corporately as a member of Christ's body, the church, single or married, this wedded status defines you. You belong to someone. And this marriage, the, the one who died for us, to the one who died for us, is fundamentally different than any covenant we have previously experienced. Well-known comedian Mark Maron, a few years back here in Austin, in a set that he was giving, joked, that the reason he remained faithful to his girlfriend was sheer terror at what she might do if he wasn't. It got a big laugh. And there's a certain realism to that joke, perhaps. It might be all too true, but there's not much romance to it. To whatever degree it might be true, it doesn't speak of heartfelt commitment of lasting love. 
And according to Marin's podcast, he and that girlfriend are no longer together. Life in the realm of the flesh, married to the law, is a little bit like that kind of relationship. Not because the law is bad, not because it's wrong to walk the line and keep a close watch, as Johnny Cash sung, but it's not the stuff of healthy, heartfelt relationship. It's not the stuff of being married to Christ. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, God has given you one remarkable marriage proposal. The logic of the flesh is to measure up and strive after the status loved by God. But to those belonging to Christ, in the cross, the measure of God's love for you is assured. You belong to one who has died in love for you. Your status as beloved of God is certain. The pledge of his love for you has already been given. Best of all, you now belong to one who was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, this covenant, this marriage is one that does not end. Death does not eradicate the love of God for you in Christ. This is the one contractual, covenantal obligation that is not nullified in death. With Jesus, it's not till death do us part, because death has been defeated. The love of God, your union with him, endures. What we see at the end of scripture, pointing us to the end of all things, is a wedding a consummation, a marriage feast of which this meal is but a small foretaste. In the end, to the end, the love of God endures. Union with him, marriage with him continues. So to belong to Jesus is to be in a position of stability like no other. As rock solid as you think your marriage is, as Rock solid as you think your family's commitment to you is. That much more is Christ's commitment to you. That much stronger is his union with you. The circumstances of your life may change and shift, but the reality of your place in Christ with God belonging does not change. Because of his completed work, because of his death upon the cross, God's commitment to you is assured. It will never be nullified. Whatever you do, Christ will not divorce you. For this reason, life with him is fundamentally different. It's wholly reliable, totally secure. In the final verse of our reading this morning, Paul drops a mention of the Spirit. And the Spirit features prominently in Romans 8, our focus in weeks to come. But the spirit, too, is part of this marriage, part of belonging to Jesus. The problem with life under the law, as Paul describes it, as much of the Bible describes it, is that the law is unable to change human hearts, to contend with the reality of our rebellion. The hope of, like, married life is not that you don't get separated. The hope of married life is not that you... Don't be, that is not that you're simply not unfaithful. 
If all there is is terror and walking the line, something is missing. The hope is a unity of heart, of body and will in love for your spouse. Not being faithful because you're scared or even because it's the right thing to do, but because that's where the weight of your love leads you to faithfulness and to self-sacrifice. The gift of God's Holy Spirit given to you who belong to him that makes life with Christ fundamentally different always and every new is that it changes our hearts. It shifts the weight of our love. The Spirit does what the law cannot do. The law papers over whatever rot is underneath with a picture of what should be. It inflames this decaying quality, sin. But the Spirit of God restores, heals what is broken, makes new, makes soft our hearts. We receive new hearts, new love, new strength, not to measure up, but to desire, to will, to actually live as God desires, to live in his love with a unity in our being, freed to serve and love, made fruitful, as Paul says, for him. This is the promise of a passage like Ezekiel 36. God in love declares over you, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey and, and to be careful to obey my rules. New hearts, new loves, the unity of marriage with Christ. This is the promise of belonging, belonging to Jesus, being wedded to him. This is what it means to serve in a new way. Such is God's love for you, that he doesn't leave you in the old way, dominated by the law, bound to the realm of striving. In Christ, he dies for us. In him, we are dead to the requirements of the law. They have no claim over you. He's wooed and won us to himself. And he has set in us his spirit. In us. That's the language of intimacy, of communion. And such is the enduring union we have with God in Christ. Not separated by death, not diminished by time or overcome by our sin. By his love, our hearts are made new. So meet the new boss, same as the old boss. No, not at all. In Christ, your life, my life, are ever new, wholly stable, fruitful, radically different. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.